Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Our topic today on Looking Forward is public opinion polling, something that's top of mind these days with the November elections coming up. Our guest today is Mark Schulman, Ph.D. Mark is an award-winning pollster and was co-founder CEO of one of the nation's largest survey research polling firms, SRBI, now part of Apt Associates. Mark has worked extensively with the news media, major corporations, foundations, and government. For news organizations, he has tracked presidential job ratings, political campaigns, analyzed election results, and probe policy issues. He served as Time Magazine's pollster for almost 10 years. He was also on the ABC News election decision desk for many years. He's been interviewed in the news media, including Time Magazine, CNN, Fox News, the BBC, Vice Media slash HBO, and many public radio stations. So you can see Mark is quite an expert on this topic. We're thrilled to have him with us. Mark, welcome to Looking Forward. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Mark, pollsters are always in the news these days, particularly now during the election cycle. Where do pollsters come from and how does somebody become a pollster? Well, I'm sure we're all bombarded with polling numbers every day. And it's a question that I'm often asked, where do pollsters come from? I don't think that kids grow up telling their parents, I want to be a pollster. <laughs> uh, I sure didn't dream of being a pollster when I grew up. In fact, I didn't know the profession existed. Uh, I thought I was headed into uh, journalism or law. They were legitimate professions in my parents' eyes. Uh, although my father really did want me to become a medical doctor. Uh, fortunately, my brother became a medical doctor. Oh, good. At least part of the <laughs> family <laughs> ambition. Uh, I did become a doctor, but a doctor in political science. <laughs> now, my parents asked me many times, what is it that you do? And I tried to explain to them <laughs> that we take samples of public opinion and uh, that we work with the government, with uh, corporations, uh, with the news media. I say, you see polls on, on radio or see them on television. That, that's what I do. I, I was at a party at my parents' house, and uh, they had some friends over. And um, one of their friends came over to me and said, I understand you're a pollster. And I said, yes. And he said, I have a chair that needs reupholstering. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Would you be interested in reupholstering my chair? And I said, <laughs> that's no, that's funny. not exactly what I do. I'm not funny. an upholsterer, but a pollster. <laughs> anyway, for most people, becoming a pollster is really uh, by accident. It's not by, it's not by design. I can uh, talk about how, how I became a pollster. Of course, it was by accident. I was uh, working at the Eagleton Institute at Rutgers University, and uh, Rutgers at that time, had one of the few state polling organizations, a major state polling organization, the new, what was called the New Jersey Poll. Sometime in the middle of one semester, the fellow who headed the Eagle, the, what was then the New Jersey Poll, now the Eagleton Poll, 
uh, left and left the poll in a lurch. In fact, it was during an election year. Well, it turns out that uh, they scanned the faculty of uh, the Rutgers Political Science Department to find out who in the world knew anything about polling. Uh, at that time in particular, political science was not particularly quantitative, not really that data oriented. Anyway, they came upon my background. Uh, I had done my master's degree, part of my PhD work at the University of Wisconsin. At that time, Wisconsin was a real center for quantitative, in other words, data research. And it turns out I was only one of two people in the entire department that had any kind of academic background in polling. Now, when I say that I had a background in polling because I had taken a course <laughs> in research methods at the University of Wisconsin was a real stretch. I was the only person in the department that really had any background. So uh, I was appointed uh, senior project director of the poll. And all I could do was try to stay a day ahead, reading <laughs> as much as I could about how in the world you conduct a poll. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, this was not front and center in a, at the University of Wisconsin. Anyway, uh, somehow we managed. And uh, one of the first polls that we conducted, which, which was then the New Jersey poll, uh, there was a gubernatorial election in Jersey. I think this was 1977 uh, between the incumbent governor, Brendan Byrne, and a fellow named Ray Bateman, who was a very prominent Republican politician. Uh, the expectation was that Brendan Byrne was, seemed to be quite unpopular, and Ray Bateman was, in fact, a very popular Republican politician. The expectation was that Bateman was going to run away with it, with the gubernatorial race. We did our, our poll, and we found that uh, Brendan Byrne actually had the lead. We went to the then director of Eagle Institute, Alan Rosenthal, wonderful man uh, who has since passed, but we presented the data to Alan, and Alan said, you guys are full of it. There's no way that Brendan Byrne is, is winning this race. He said, you're going to make fools of us. He said, could you go back and check that data again and again and make sure that you ran the data right, you know, the data processing? And when we checked it and checked it and went back to Alan, and uh, I said to Alan, by the way, how come the poll is called the New Jersey poll rather than the Eagleton poll? Because it's headquartered at the Eagleton Institute. And Alan looked me straight in the face and he said, do you think I would ride the reputation on this institute <laughs> on your polling? <laughs> no way we're going to call this the Eagleton poll. He yeah. said, it's the New Jersey poll to keep distance. Yes. between ourselves and this, this polling that you guys do. Well, Brendan Byrne won the race. Wow. He persevered and won. And uh, it went to Alan, and Alan's head was spinning. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the Eagleton Institute and the Eagleton and the polling organization was suddenly held in very high esteem by all the Jersey and New York media. And... At that point, Alan said, I may reconsider naming this poll the Eagleton poll rather than the New Jersey poll. Anyway, I thought I was headed for a career in academia, uh, working at Rutgers uh, in political science. And uh, while I was uh, doing the polling, I realized that I had really developed a love of polling, a love of the methodology, a love of the applications, 
And I thought to myself, I wonder if there's an opportunity outside of academia to pursue a career in polling. I really knew of only two commercial research organizations at the time. There was the Gallup poll and the Harris poll, Lou Harris. So just to check things out, I sent a letter to Lou Harris asking about if there are any job opportunities and attaching a resume. Two days later, I got a call from Humphrey Taylor, who was Lou's number two, asking me if I could come to New York for an interview tomorrow. <laughs> wow. He said, we're, in, we're located in Rockefeller Center. And I thought, oh. <laughs> well, the truth is that uh, Mark, being an academe, didn't even own a suit. But I thought, if I'm going to be interviewed with Lou Harris in Rockefeller Center, I better have a suit to look presentable. So I uh, was on the phone with Humphrey. I said, you know, I, I really have a busy schedule tomorrow. I'm actually teaching a class, but I am available on Thursday, if that's acceptable. And he said, sure, that's fine. Well, of course, the first thing I did was run down to the nearest haberdasher and <laughs> ask them if I purchased a suit, could they have it tailored by Thursday morning. Uh, the Haberdasher, the clothing store, the men's clothing store yeah. near the East Brunswick bus station. So I figured I could always change to, into the suit and hop on, hop on a bus and get to New York by one o'clock. So anyway, that's exactly what happened. So I was, felt a little intimidated meeting Lou Harris. Lou was one of the kings of polling at the time. Oh, yes. Uh, the Harris Poll. Uh, we were also working with ABC, doing all the ABC polling. Wow. And Lou had a column in many newspapers. So I felt a little intimidated. I did a little bit of reading ahead of time to try to make sure I didn't get psyched out by Lou to understand where Lou was coming from. So get to Lou's office. It's a corner office in Rockefeller Center. And needless to say, I was a little intimidated, not just being with Lou, sitting with Lou, but being in Rockefeller Center of all places. Yeah. You know, a guy from Northeast Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, anyway, we uh, chatted. Uh, we were in heavy conversation for about two or two and a half hours. And finally, Lou turned to me. And he said, oh, you're hired, you're hired. And he said, oh, how much money do you want? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll just, you know, present this number to Lou. And Lou went like this, no, 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 no. And I thought, oh, I blew it. You know, here I am. I'm just yeah. about, you know, on the verge of getting the job of my life, you know, uh, dreams. And he said, too low, too low. Too low. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should have that happen. Mark. Oh my goodness. When can you start? Yeah. Anyway, it turned out that the reason he needed someone with some academic credentials was because uh, he had uh, gotten a contract to do a very major survey of urban America uh, for HUD, for HUD. And uh, you really did need someone with some academic training. Now, I didn't bother to tell him that I was just one day ahead. <laughs> but I was, yeah. still, I was still reading uh, you know, as, as fast as I could to figure out how to do this. This is a classic anyway, case, Mark, of the expert knows 5% more than the other guy, right? That, that's, that's about it, yeah, yeah. 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 So 
anyway, uh, that's, that's how I got started in commercial polling. As I said, it wasn't what I dreamed to be growing up. But as if you talk to many pollsters, they will tell you similar stories that it just happens. At some point, though, you decided that you would start your own firm. So were there any key learnings that you got from working with Lou about research that carried with you further in your career? My major learning from Lou was not in the area of research methodology. Rather, it was entrepreneurship. entrepreneurship. Lou was a phenomenal entrepreneur. Lou's clientele was an absolutely blue-chip clientele. What I learned from Lou was how to establish an organization that could reach the highest levels. And I learned a bit about writing style, journalistic writing style. But I learned a lot about from Lou. You know, I was with Lou for over four years, and I decided that it was probably time to strike out on my own. I had a couple of colleagues at uh, Harris who worked for me or worked with me, Al Ranka and Mike Vivavalis. And um, we had talked for a while about whether we should, you know, or could go out on our own. And we finally decided to take that step. Now, in retrospect, I think back on it and I think, boy, was that naive. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we decided to take a chance. As I said, I, you know, I think it was one of the more naive decisions <laughs> that I made. But that's what we do when we're in our 20s or early 30s. Yeah, we exactly. think we can do these things. Exactly. Fortunately, we had a few clients who were really loyal to us. Even from day one, uh, we had you know, some clientele that, uh, went, that went with us. Uh, one of the oddest was a, an agricultural research firm in North Carolina, Horace Kelly and Associates. And Horace did uh, surveys of farmers, largely for agricultural goods, manufacturers and tractors, companies, things like that, and uh, seed companies and so on. Now, our interviewing facility was actually in Manhattan, but uh, one of our first and probably best clients at the time, uh, you know, was to conduct agricultural research from Manhattan of all places. <laughs> and we always dreaded when people on the phone asked, uh, well, where are you calling from? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we would say, well, Horace Kelly and Associates in North Carolina, but they would say, but where are you calling from? Oh. You know, these, the farmers in the Midwest or in the South and yeah. say, well, we're, <laughs> we're in Manhattan. <laughs> so, anyway, it worked out fine. And we gradually picked up what I consider to be a fairly blue chip clientele. One of the actually first really blue chip clients that we had was AT&T. And AT&T asked us, uh, SRB, SRBI, if we would like to work with them in doing research on the repositioning of AT&T. AT&T had traditionally been known as Ma Bell, but they wanted to peer into the future, not as Ma Bell, but as a, uh, a real high-tech uh, company that was at the cutting edge of technology and not just be the telephone company. 
And of course, this was an extraordinary opportunity. We worked with AT&T for about a year on this project. This was really a landmark, a landmark study. In fact, the fellow who was head of research at AT&T at the time said that uh, someday uh, this research will be featured in the Harvard Business Review because it really pointed directions for AT&T following the vestiture. And here they are. They're still in business today. And, and who, even I forget Ma Bell. That really changed the direction. Yes. One of the um, great things and great attractions of polling is at the base of polling is survey research. And what is survey research? It's finding a market or a universe and creating a study design that gives every unit, person or company or whatever in that, uh, in that universe, an equal or known probability of being interviewed or surveyed. And hence, uh, you know, most people think of election polling and public opinion polling as what we do. But the truth is that it's only the tip of the iceberg. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at dollars and cents in polling firms, most polling firms derive most of their revenue, not from election polling and public opinion polling, although that's a major market, but because of the versatility of the method, the method can be applied to numerous areas. Uh, for example, uh, we did many healthcare surveys. We uh, examined the issue of food insecurity. All of this, again, through surveys, the same methodology that's used in election surveys. We looked at education policy. We looked at for the Rockefeller Foundation, we looked at attitudes toward charter schools and public schools. We interviewed parents of school kids. We did extensive work uh, in environmental policy, some of which for the Department of Agriculture. Uh, we conducted what was one of the first surveys trying to gauge the prevalence of, of, of spousal violence and spousal abuse. And what we found was that it, that study challenged many of the myths of spousal abuse. The survey, Spousal Violence in Kentucky, is actually still in print. This issue came up about a year ago about spousal abuse. And I happened to find the entire report that I wrote on Google. And it was still available on Amazon. <laughs> wow. Now, one of the things with looking forward is we first start by looking a little backward. And of course, we have done this a little bit with tracing some of your earlier days in the polling business, your work with Lou Harris, then we move up to AT&T and some of these great studies that you've been involved with. Let's move it up a little closer to the current situation, Mark. How would you say the public opinion process has changed over, say, the past decade? You're an author and an expert on this. How would you say things have changed moving it up in the last decade or so? The survey research landscape is always evolving, okay. and that's been true since day one and continues at a rapid pace today because of technology. Let me tell you a story about Lou. Uh, the 1980 presidential election, Lou, of course, was famous for his election polling. And at that time, uh, telephone polling was fairly new. Polling, for the most part, was done uh, door to door. Interviewers wow. went door to door nationally. Almost all polling 
was done. I didn't door-to-door. remember that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And um, anyway, those of us, uh, you know, in the organization, uh, you know, confronted with polling for the 1980 presidential campaign, suggested that, you know, maybe we want to do this polling by telephone. Lou told us that I don't believe in telephone interviewing. <laughs> people won't answer the telephone or the, uh, not everybody has a telephone. You know, how do we reach the people who don't have telephones? I know when I do door to door surveys that, you know, we're reaching everybody. Um, so we struck a deal with Lou. <laughs> okay. And that was that Lou would continue to do his, uh, poll, his, his election polling door to door, but we would do parallel telephone polling to see how well telephone versus in-person coincided to see if they were parallel. And uh, so Lou did his, you know, in-person polling and, you know, we did our telephone polling and uh, the results were pretty much the same. And Lou from that point on became at least somewhat of (laughs) an acceptor. I wouldn't say a believer, but an acceptor. He's still... He's, he's still mumbled about, it. <laughs> you know, not everybody has a telephone and, uh, you know, people might not answer the telephone and, you know, whatever. So, uh, you know, it, it dates back. Uh, if you look at the history of polling, uh, you know, back in 1936, I'm not going to go through the history of polling. Yeah. But it's always evolving. And it's certainly evolving at a rapid pace today. And one of the reasons that it's evolving at a rapid pace today is because of technology. And technology is forcing us to rethink and recalibrate our methods. You know, when we do traditional telephone surveys or interviews, traditional survey research, traditional survey research, which is what most of us do, you know, relies on self-reports. In other words, people responding to the queries in our questionnaire. And oftentimes people may not respond truthfully, or uh, they may simply have forgotten incidents that we query them about. In other words, there can be a big gap between what people self-report and actuality. Yes. But we have to think of our profession in broader terms. We have to think of ourselves not necessarily as survey researchers, but as researchers dedicated to providing evidence-based data-driven policy research. And what that means is that we need to leverage new data sources uh, in order to unlock insights. And our focus today is not just on traditional survey research, but it's how survey research integrates with data science and data capture. It's important to what we call de-silo and synthesize multiple data sources, not just survey research. Now, people still have opinions, and we still capture opinions through survey research. You know, let's think about all of the data that's, being, that's, that's out there. For example, every time you go on the internet, every time you tweet, every time you go on Facebook, every time you make a purchase on the internet or make a purchase, at your supermarket. Think about, you know, the supermarket has frequent shopper cards. Sure. All of that data is being collected and much of it is being aggregated in data warehouses. If you were to look at 
the information that a data warehouse or Facebook, for example, has on Jeff Ostroff. Uh, you might find it shocking. Yeah. You know, when you're online, you ever wonder why stuff keeps popping up? <laughs> yeah. It seems to be slightly relevant. Yeah. Um, or even on or, my phone, Mark, even on my yes. phone. Oh, yes, the same. It's the same. Same thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 There's information about your eating habits, your medical records, your medications, your sexual orientation, uh, your purchases. There is just an enormous amount of data. Facebook has a feature that allows you to uh, identify what information Facebook has captured on you. There's a reason that political campaigns, for example, have switched from just doing you know, normal surveys and advertising to what we call micro-targeting. In other words, we're not just more, they're not just targeting people who live in Philadelphia, okay? Or people who are upscale, or people who are minorities. But rather, um, if you look at the data that has been captured and is available to uh, micro-targeting, you might be shocked. For example, what networks do you watch? Where do you get your news? Um, do you watch MSNBC or do you watch Fox News? You know, Comcast knows exactly <laughs> where you get your news. And that's an just one indicator of many, many indicators. They have thousands of pieces of data on you yeah. and Mark Schulman and Ed Schulman, my brother, and, yeah. and so on and so on. Uh, for example, in a political campaign, if uh, your emphasis is on environmental policy, let's say, there are numerous uh, sources, data sources, to identify people who belong to environmental organizations or who have visited environmental uh, web pages or uh, environmental causes or have contributed to other candidates. All of these records, your records or your voter registration records, can be tied to hundreds and thousands of pieces of other data to provide a picture of you. So if I'm spending my campaign dollars, I want to maximize the impact of those dollars. And how do I maximize the impact? Well, I go to a Facebook or a Google. And you know, the Russians know that too. Yeah. Uh, you know, talking about micro-targeting, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, uh, you know, their internet agency uh, is uh, quite up to speed <laughs> on using this micro-targeting, targeting individuals and sets of individuals uh, based on all of this background data. Oh, you know, if, if you look at tweets, for example, there are hundreds of millions of tweets every day. Every 60 seconds, there are 11 million instant messages. Mm. There are hundreds of thousands of Google searches. Your cell phone is one of the great data sources. Your cell phone always knows where you are, sometimes precisely where you are. That's because your cell phone knows all of this. I gather from what you're saying that there's an incredible amount of data about us. How has polling changed and how does it integrate well, with, with this is This is exactly the point that I was making. Uh, today, rather than being driven totally you know, by self-reports, which are very error prone. By the way, there's error in the other, you know, in the digital world too. Yeah. 
uh, but that data is being integrated into wow. our research methods so that we're transitioning to a more integrated data collection methodology that incorporates these new data sources and uses data science and data capture and what I call de-siloing. In other words, in the old days, you know, there was the data that was collected through self-report in our surveys, and there was other data that was collected by your cell phone or by your computer. Today, we're merging those sources together. It's not that there's no room for survey research. There certainly is. But survey research today is one of the tools that we use, but it's not the only tool. And today, we're not just pollsters and survey researchers. We're data scientists. And our job is to provide the most accurate picture we can using multiple data sources in order to inform our clients and speak truth to power. So in other words, whereas before you would do a survey for AT&T of different constituencies, and you would then report back to them, this is the way these people are reporting how they see things yes. about, in this case, AT&T. Now you would do a survey and ask people these same questions, but you're not going to give AT&T the answers based solely on what you gleaned from that survey research. You're also going to throw in this other stuff and yeah. then give them what this suggests. A fuller picture of mm. our, our universe and of our, of our targets. Now, that's particularly true in the consumer world, consumer goods. And uh, in fact, in many cases, uh, these new data sources that we've unlocked provide better insights than our verbal self-reports. And that's why, you know, a lot of us have been repositioning ourselves to be not just survey researchers, but data scientists. And there's a whole other field, predictive analytics, that enables us to, you know, through uh, various statistical operations, to get a pretty good picture of future behavior based on the data we have on hand. If you go into a store and uh, let's say, you know, you're, you're shopping for uh, cereal, you know, chances are that uh, the store has an enormous amount of information on you. And there are companies like salesforce.com that provide stores who subscribe to their service with a history of your purchase patterns. And you may find suddenly a coupon on your cell phone for a specific brand that's based on your purchase habits. Yeah, it's really interesting. Lou Harris had a problem with phone calling. It used to be a knock on people's doors. Now we're at a point where a lot of people don't have landline phones. More and more people have cell phones. What impact has that had on the surveying process? And if I can have you lump an even bigger thing together with that, COVID-19. So let's sure. start with the cell phones. Okay. And then go to COVID-19 and the serving process yeah. in and of itself, uh, apart from all the data gathering, just the, the idea of calling people or however you're polling people. Yeah. Landlines are passe. Passe. Uh, the bulk of the polling that we do is done on cell phone. 
some 65, 70% of people use their cell phone as their main telephone. And most of them don't even have landlines. Yeah, yeah. So in our polling, uh, the large majority, 65 or 70% of the calls that we make are made to cell phones and not landline oh. phones. So that's how we, that's how we compensate. Now that's changed, uh, you know, the landline phone used to be a household phone, whereas the cell phone is a personal phone. Yes. So it's changed a little bit the way we look at data and weight data. And also we try to be cautious when interviewing someone on the cell phone to make sure that they're not in a precarious situation, driving a car or uh, in the midst of, you know, some hazardous <laughs> operation, yeah. because, you know, that, that wasn't the case with the old landline, but Absolutely. with the cell phone, we have no idea where you're standing or sitting. I, I remember that uh, I was, we were in uh, Portugal and my, uh, my, my cell phone rang and uh, it was someone doing <laughs> we were visiting portugal <laughs> <laughs> and you got called for and i got i got i got called in fact we were in the mountains in portugal it tells you you know this told me you know that the european cell systems mobile phone systems are really good <laughs> yeah we were in the middle of nowhere <laughs> i still could reach you and somehow my phone my phone rang this has happened to me a number of times in europe so that's one major change that's occurred. Now with cell phones, Mark, just to, before you get to COVID, nowadays, more so than ever, it seems, you have people getting all these robocalls and, and bogus calls. And I know FTC and whoever is trying to crack down on this, but you still get a million calls coming in. I, most of the time, don't even answer my phone. If I don't know the number, I don't Doesn't that affect the ability to do surveys? Most people don't even want to answer their phone. There's been a long-term decline in response rates. And the issue you tapped is an issue that we face every day. That, uh, you know, response rates at one time used to be 30 40%. And now, you know, if we get a 10% response rate, that's considered to be good. But the issue is, yes, the response rate is important, but the question is, are our surveys still representative, even though response rates have declined? And, uh, you know, the answer so far is, you know, they're, they're still pretty representative in spite of the decline. Now, also, uh, I mentioned, you know, new sources of data collection, much data collection. In fact, more data collection today is done online than is done by telephone. Hmm. And I should have made that point earlier. Um, for example, uh, much of the election polling that uh, you, know, you uh, see in here is actually collected through panel studies. These are studies of people who are repeatedly interviewed during the election year. Uh, and the value of repeat interviews is that if there are shifts, you know, in, in the population and thinking about candidates or issues, you know, we have uh, data from previous interviews that we can then compare to their current thinking. And this has added a tremendous dimension, new dimension to, to what we're doing. Uh, so uh, as a result, and also because of uh, one, one uh, 
uh, side effect of the switch to mobile phones is that polling has become much more expensive. And um, as a result, just the economics today are difficult to defend if there are other less expensive options. And uh, a you know, major less expensive option is collecting data online or on your cell phone. In fact, today, a very large percentage of the data we collect is uh, people on their cell phones responding to our surveys on their cell phones. Wow, that's a huge and, change. Yeah, and one thing we do is make sure that uh, our surveys are what we call optimized so that they fit on the cell phone screen. That's great stuff. And boy, those are huge changes. And we're really talking in the last 10 years up to the present day. COVID, any impact with COVID on this surveying work? Yeah, as, as tragic as uh, COVID has been yeah. uh, for the survey world, it's actually increased response rates. <laughs> oh, because people, words, are, people, home? people are home? What's happening is people are sitting at home. Sitting at home. And, you know, our social interactions in general uh, are very limited these days because of social distancing and sheltering at home. And so when people have an opportunity to respond to a survey, our response rates have actually gone up substantially. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's, it's, I, mean, I would like, not wish COVID on anyone or any society. No, it's <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's like bad news, world. good news. Yeah, for yeah. the survey world, you know, people sheltering in place at home you know, has meant uh, much more receptivity to <laughs> Isn't that to interesting? Wow. More research. Before we get to the future and have you project a little bit, you mentioned something I, I'm really curious about. I think the listeners would be curious about too. All these election polls that are done, regardless of how they're done, the panels, the phone calls, the internet, there's been a lot of questioning as to how reliable these polls are. What is, what is your perspective as an expert on how much value, credibility, validity should people see in the latest polls that are being done about the election without getting into specifics about the candidates? Yeah, okay. The, uh, the question is a good one because there's a lot of misinformation. If you look at polling in 2016, our national polls, and I was involved with you know, a number of national tracking polls, our national tracking polls were very close to the final popular vote. Remember, you know, Hillary won the popular vote by about three million. Our national polls really reflected and closely reflected the actual uh, vote total uh, nationally. Yeah. The problem in 2016 was that there were many state polls that were done by well, say people in organizations who are not as expert at, uh, at polling. And um, the American Association for Public Opinion Research, I'm a past president, uh, did a, uh, an analysis of what went wrong with many of the state polls. Okay. And what went wrong was that, among other things, um, they didn't wait properly for... Um, white males, and particularly white males with less than college education. Uh, these are the state polls, not state the national polls. polls. And by underestimating the uh, 
support for uh, for for Trump yes. uh, among that group, they underestimated because uh, his support was particularly focused on white males with less than college education, who in any survey, whether it's national, state, local, tend to be underestimated. Hence, mm -hmm. in our national, we weight them up. But these surveys were conducted by a number of organizations that were not as adept at uh, the methodology and weighting. And that steered some of those surveys in the wrong direction. Is that being addressed in your Absolutely, yeah. now? Yeah. It yeah, is the polls, yeah. Now, there's another issue, too, and that is turnout. turnout. Um, you know, it's one thing to do a cross-section sample of the adult public. However, in elections, that doesn't hold. Um, you can do a survey of registered voters, or at least self-reported registered voters, although people often tell us they're registered and they're not registered. That's the reason that we sometimes often use voter registration lists these days as opposed to relying on self-report. That's another example of using hard data. But the big question, and particularly going into 2020, into November, is who's going to turn out? And who's going to sit on their hands? Right. And that's a whole other, that's a whole other discussion. But uh, that may determine the outcome. And now we have, because of COVID, we have uh, record numbers of people who are planning or have mail balloted. Yeah. But that's become controversial as well. You know, five or six states conduct all of their elections through mail balloting. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, but it has become, you know, a political issue. But I said, that's a whole other discussion. But that's our worry right now. You know, it's not the projectability of the election surveys, but the question of whose votes are actually going to be counted. That's what worries us. Is it whose votes are going to be counted, Mark? Or is or it whose votes not are, people yeah. actually go to vote? Yeah, I'm sorry. Who? Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, whether people actually go to vote. Now, do you find in surveying, again, I don't know if this has changed, but Let's bring this up to 2020. From your experience, do you find that there's a certain percentage, I don't know if it's small, of people who will tell a pollster like you, I'm going to vote for this person, say this guy, but in fact, they're really going to vote for the other guy because they, for whatever reason, they don't want you to know or they're embarrassed. Does that happen much? Well, you know, there's some anecdotal evidence of that happening. But in the studies that we've done, and particularly APOR, the American Association of Public Opinion Research, has taken a deep dive into, into this issue of the so-called shy voter, uh, you know, who, you know, may not want to disclose. You know, frankly, I don't find very many shy voters. <laughs> and APOR didn't find many shy voters. Uh, so a number of studies were done and candidates uh, find themselves on the losing end in a survey, they often say, well, the reason is because of shy voters or voters who lie to the pollsters. If you think about it, and you know, this is the logic of it, why would a voter lie in a survey when in fact uh, the political campaigns you know, base their strategies and expenditures on polling? For example, if uh, someone were to lie to a pollster or if large numbers of people were to lie to pollsters and say they're voting for candidate X when in fact they're voting for candidate Y. Candidate Y spends 
uh, a tremendous amount of money, probably in the wrong place. Yes. Because they're also relying on polls. Yes. And for example, if you have a state that traditionally has gone to one party or another party and polling, current polling indicates that the party that traditionally won the state, you know, is uh, in the doghouse. And, you know, what that means is, number one, the party itself, the the strategists may decide that we need to invest a lot more money. Now, if people, in fact, were being dishonest with the pollsters, they'd be wasting the money. Or in some cases, the political campaign may actually withdraw from that state mistakenly. Right. If the polling was misled based on shy voters or whatever, you know, whoever you want to call them. So if, if anybody is, you know, lying to the pollsters, and I'm still probably some, there's some anecdotal evidence, yeah. but, but nothing, nothing that we've come up with. They're really harming the candidate that they support. Also, yeah. who contributes to political campaigns? You know, people don't like to contribute to campaigns that are on the losing end. Exactly. exactly. And, you know, if the polls are showing that candidate X is on the losing end, that candidate, even, but if his shy voters were <laughs> lying to the pollsters, they may cut off their political contributions to the super PACs that's supporting that candidate or the candidates directly. Uh, uh, and that, that, would be, that would be a disaster. Yes, it's counterproductive and the repercussions, exactly. and the repercussions that you talked about were many. Yeah. Mark, if you had to speculate, and here I'm moving more into looking forwards, focus on the future, what significant changes do you envision we might see in public opinion polling over the next, say, five to 10 years? Realizing, of course, that a year ago, you and I wouldn't have used the word COVID. We wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have even come up once. Along with the changes, thinking about if you were back at Wisconsin and thinking about a career, or if you were a guy who, or a gal who's laid off and trying to figure out how do I get a new job, maybe I got to make a career change, midlife change, where might there be opportunities in market research and public opinion polling and that sort of thing? So sort of two questions, the future and then opportunities. Got it. Well, as I mentioned, in the future, there is going to be a much heavier emphasis on data. In other words, not just survey data, but data and all the data sources and de-siloing those data sources so that they integrate together. The major opportunities today are really less in traditional polling or survey research, although there'll always be a need for traditional research. The advice I give uh, those who who ask is that uh, your best bet is to focus on data science and predictive analytics Mm. and understand uh, how to utilize and capture all of these data sources so that we get the most comprehensive picture of what's going on. If you look, for example, at uh, some of the most successful digital companies, actually almost all of them, they all now, the Amazons of the world, whatever, and Salesforce.com, they all have major investments in data science and predictive analytics because that's what drives the consumer. 
And that's what drives these operations. And with the advent of the cloud, you know, there was a time when our data storage was limited to, you know, the, the mainframe or a huge mainframes or uh, PCs. Well, today there's no limit to the amount of data we can collect. You know, I don't know how to describe this cloud up there, <laughs> but this cloud has endless capacity for sucking in data yeah. and maintaining that data and analyzing that data. And if you're a young person, you know, looking for a career in marketing and market research, the best advice I can give you is to do work and study data analytics and predictive analytics and statistics, uh, because that's where the future is headed. And in fact, not only headed, we're there already. When you talk about things like uh, predictive analysis, data gathering, and are these things that somebody can study in college? Is this like part of yes. a uh, marketing business? Is that where somebody gets in, involved Absolutely. with this? Absolutely. This is the fastest growing, or at least as far as I know, the fastest growing area in college and graduate curriculum. I myself have worked with several colleges and universities to uh, install data analytics and data science as a major. Last year, I was talking with a woman who has the data analytics, I'm, I'm not sure the exact name, but department at the University of Wisconsin, my, one of my alma maters. Yeah. And she said that at one time, you know, they had 150, maybe 200 students. Uh, now she said, we're just overwhelmed with students. And we have eight, 900 students in our program, and we're hard-pressed to find faculty <laughs> that are you know, knowledgeable and qualified to teach in this, in this area. It's yes. so fast-growing. And in fact, uh, someone suggested that, you know, for the top uh, data scientists, you know, they're uh, in so much demand that you might think of the job market there as the same way as the free agent market in football. <laughs> in other words, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you go to the, the highest bidder exactly. and companies are bidding for the top data scientists. It's a seller's market. What about computers? There's still opportunities, not necessarily in doing the number crunching or the oh, yeah. information, but there's still will be more opportunities with the allied areas like computers? Absolutely, yeah. But uh, today, uh, you know, writing these programs and the scripts and the coding, and there's a whole, a whole area uh, that's just booming right now. Wow. The other thing, Mark, is you mentioned Lou Harris and yourself. I could include myself in this group. We were involved in communications in some way. You talked about your writing, about Lou's writing. Do journalists or people who have writing skills have an opportunity here as well? Or you need more than just being able to write up a good report or write up a good survey or something like that? Yeah, it's not just a question of writing up a good report. It's a question of communication skills and being able to present your findings in a cogent way. Uh, you can do the best you know, research in the world, but you know, if it's gonna sit on the shelf, you know, we often talk about uh, distilling our findings to one or two pages because people today don't necessarily want to read through 
you know, hundreds of pages of <laughs> data tables and graphics. And the question is, what does this mean for me? That's what I want to know. What, what do I take from this, this research? Yes. What does it mean to me? And how does it impact what I'm doing? Right. It's that famous question of, what is it? W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me, right? And yes. That's, that's, that's the yeah. key here. For us, yes. Yeah. Mark, yeah. this has been great, very enlightening, fun to listen to. I just wanted to ask you if you could share with our listeners how they can reach you if they want to learn more about you and your work, including some of the great research you've done. I mean, there's research that's still out there yeah, that Amazon has. <laughs> I mean, how do they find out more about all this stuff? The best way is uh, through social media, through LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn and I post on LinkedIn and Facebook. That's, that's really the best way to communicate. Feel free to befriend me. <laughs> okay. I guess that's what, it, that's what it involves. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to respond. Excellent. And just to be clear, everybody, Mark's last name is spelled S-C-H-U-L-M-A-N. Thank you so much for being our guest on Looking Forward. It's really been fun. Thank you. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.